ask Andrew and Julie if they'd like to come on down. And uh, Jeremy, we're just going to use this mic. Jeremy, if we... So, welcome guys. Uh, this is uh, Professor Andrew McGonagall and Dr. Julie McGonagall. So tell us, what are you doing in Australia? Because when you open your mouths, you'll realize quickly that they're not born and bred here. So can you just give us a brief, like, how did you get to be here? You can go first. All the answers to Andrew. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, sure. Why okay. We're here, I'm on secondment for a year to St. Andrew's Cathedral School. So I'm vice principal in a school back in England. Um, the head of St. Andrew's Cathedral School came to my school a little while back, and that was the connection was made. And then one thing led to another, and uh, here we are. In fact, I'll tell you the one thing that led to another. We were having family prayers one day, and... Um, our son, Theo, said, uh, I think we're going to go to Sydney. I said, do you know what Sydney is? And he said, no. <laughs> uh, do you know where Sydney is? No. And I thought, okay. And the only connection I had was um, Dr. Collier at the school. So I contacted him and one thing led to another and here we are. So just clarify, how old is Theo at this time? He is nine. He's nine. Yep. So he, okay, good. So let your kids guide your major life decisions. <laughs> That's the take yeah. home Seems that. foolish, I realize. <laughs> God speaks, you know, just Joel too, he'll you know, speak to our kids, right? Spirit of prophecy. Uh, um, and so, so you're an educator. Andrew, what do you do uh, in, in your day job? Um, so I'm, I'm a scientist. I, I clamber around volcanoes um, with instruments and try and work out how they tick, i.e. when the tick might turn into a bang because that might be important for the people who live around them. So, um, so basically, around this time uh, that we were sort of mulling the, the scenario of coming to, uh, to Sydney, now, of course, I come from Scotland, as you might guess. I don't have the Billy Connolly version of the Scottish but accent, which is just, why, we, way, so which is why we don't need a translation. We're, we're, getting sub, we're, we're going to put the subtitles up through the sermon just so you can understand them. Cause, you know. I'm actually amazed. I mean, you may have noticed the sports score yesterday. I mean, well, uh, let me just say I wasn't expecting... I thought the numbers were going to be the other way around. But anyway, I'll... I'll yeah, I know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so basically, for, for when, when this was all going on, I, I got funding, basically, to, to buy me out in terms of my position in the UK, which meant I can take sabbatical this year. Um, I'm visiting at, at Sydney Uni, so it's, it's been incredible, really, how the door has opened, for which we're very grateful indeed. So uh, tell us a little bit about how you guys each came to know Jesus. What's been your spiritual journey to faith? Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about that in, okay. as part of what I say, okay. so I'll let uh, Andrew answer that Andrew. one. Yeah, okay, yeah. Good. okay thank you. Um, so, well, for me, so I mentioned before my career is um, professionally I'm a scientist, and that was something that always interested me. So when, when I was younger, 
I spent a lot of my childhood wandering around the Scottish Highlands where the temperature is about 30 degrees below what it is here in Sydney. Um, but we have spectacular scenery. I'm sure some of you have been there. Think Braveheart, that sort of idea. Um, and I, I didn't grow up in a Christian household and I, I was absolutely overwhelmed by this scenery, which is just spectacular. And I had a number of experiences at that time. Once in particular, um, I don't know if you've been to Edinburgh, but Edinburgh is built on seven former volcanoes, the most important of which is Arthur's Seat, uh, right in the middle of the town. And I remember sitting next to Arthur's Seat, looking at what was basically an old lava flow, which is obviously frozen over now, and having this absolutely overpowering sense of awe and, 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 and fear, actually, of God. Um, now, I, I wouldn't necessarily have expressed that in that language at that time, but that, plus a number of other experiences, led me to this real quest. You know, I could see the, the staggering beauty uh, of nature, and I was just overwhelmed to understand, was there something behind that, some personality, perhaps? So one thing led to another. I went to university, and then... I, well, and I'd also been reading the Old Testament at that time as well. Um, so I, my mind was just full of this imagery of meeting God on mountains and deserts and seas parting and all the rest of it. Um, so I felt I kind of knew everything about the Bible apart from Jesus, <laughs> which is kind of important. So um, I went to university and then someone explained to me Jesus and clearly you don't understand anything about the Bible in a, in a way until you've, until you've understood and then come to know Jesus. And, and for me, when I became a Christian, the most wonderful thing was I felt as though my experience of God, I could see it mirrored in different ways um, through, you know, through the stories of the, of the Bible from the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, yeah, that's, that's my story. Thank you. So just quickly, uh, I am told that... Uh, Many people struggle to think that you can be a scientist and be a Christian. Uh, and they think, oh, maybe not in our circles, but aren't they? Well, if you become a Christian, you've got to take your brain out of gear. Christianity is anti-scientific. Um, in 30 seconds or less, <laughs> explain to us how one could reconcile Christian faith and uh, the practice of a scientist, of science. No problem. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't think so. Well, okay, in 30 seconds. Okay, so basically, now I'm sure there's scientists here and others who, of you who will have read and know probably a lot about science, but the scientific method is a particular way of viewing the world, which has been incredibly useful and powerful in both our understanding and solving a whole series of uh, humanitarian problems, which now mean that we've got far better medicine, for instance, than we had in the Middle Ages. Um, so it's... it's exceptionally powerful and exceptionally useful, but there's nothing within the scientific method which says that that's the only way by which we can come to understand. So that's probably the first thing that I'd throw out there. Um, the second thing is that actually um, the evidence, just looking at it in a very objective way, the evidence doesn't point towards uh, there not being Christians who are very prominent scientists. Um, the vice chancellor of our university in the UK is a Christian, um, and there's there's lots more examples of, of people who have who have very profound faith who are operating absolutely at the top echelons of of, of science. So uh, maybe uh, later in the year we'll get you to come back and do a little 
you might expand that and unpack science and faith. And if you have friends who might be interested in that, uh, Andrew could come and run a seminar or some sort of an evening, cheese and wine and volcanoes. Um, just quickly, uh, our daughter Freya is going on exchange to Reunion. Reunion has a volcano on it, an active volcano, doesn't it? Is it likely to explode in the next six months and kill our daughter? Well, if it does, we'll, we'll give her some sensors. She can collect some oh, data. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dying for a good cause. That's awesome. <laughs> Love it. On that note, um, <laughs> thank you. Let me pray. I want to pray for these guys in their respective roles uh, and ministries. Lord God, thank you for Julie and for Andrew for bringing them to Sydney for this year. Uh, we pray for Andrew's role as a scientist and as a follower of you. Bless him as he, uh, as he studies volcanoes and builds sensors and collects data to uh, help uh, communities understand when the, the volcanoes around them are going to erupt. And uh, we pray for his witness in the science department uh, at uh, Sheffield University that it will be a strong light for you. And we thank you for Julie and bringing her to St Andrews. Thank you for her ministry there and the influence and impact she's having for you in that school. And we pray that you will bless her remaining time here, that it will be extraordinarily fruitful for your kingdom and for the lives of all the families and children who are involved in that school community. Uh, and bless them as they raise their own family. Uh, may they continue to love and bless and support them, and may their kids grow and flourish in you. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, so it's over to Julie. Uh, she is going to... Um, she, she said, while she gets set up, she said she's never really preached before. She's done, you know, big... She did a big keynote thing at Shaw School the other week and speaks to a 1,000 kids at a time, and she's going to speak on resilience and hope. Uh, from Romans 5. And so I said, look, the very least, what you can do for the next 20 minutes is give us all an experience of suffering so that we develop hope and character. So, you know, you can't lose, can you? I said, that's my view of preaching. At least that's what I, you know, the very least, it'll help you all develop character. So, Julie, thank you for coming. Anything you need from me? No, we're all good. All good, lovely. Thank you. We're all good. Hello. I'm from Ireland. I don't know if we got to that in our discussion about Scotland. I always tell the same joke, which is when I asked the students in St. Andrews which part of Ireland I was from, they guessed Scotland, <laughs> which was a beautiful start to my stay there. Okay. Um, this morning, we're going to talk about hope. And I'm a teacher, so I'm going to make you do a little bit of work. If you want to put up the first slide. Okay, so let me just read this. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Let me just start by praying. Father, we ask that you would come by your Holy Spirit and that you would give us hearts to understand and ears to hear. For your name's sake, amen. Over Easter... 
my children and I were doing a meditation on the concept of love from 1 Corinthians 13. Um, You will all have read that many times and probably know it off by heart, but I think it's worth reading it again. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Having spent time learning these verses, I then said to my children, which of these virtues do you think you need more of? My youngest son, Rafferty, who is five, immediately piped up and said, Mommy, I think you need more patience. (laughs) Then my eldest son thought for a moment, and he said, Hope. I need more hope. And then he followed it by saying, I need more hope because when something goes wrong, I find it very hard to pull myself out of it. I lose my hope and then everything goes wrong. I lose my hope and then everything goes wrong. My son, in my mind, has the best that life can offer. He has a happy home life. He has a great school. He has a magnificent mother. And and yet... In his mind, intuitively, what he knows he needs is hope. And this morning, I just want to take a very short period of time just to focus on this idea of hope and what it is for us. If we we just move on to slide three... Okay, so let me start with this. It's going to be a conceptual reflection rather than exegesis as such. So here are some verses, and we've had a bit of an AV breakdown, so um, forgive me that it's all coming at once. But here are some verses that talk about hope throughout the Bible. So the first one, in this hope we are saved. Wow. Wow. That's some claim. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you. So actually, faith and love come from hope. We talk a lot about faith and love. How much do we talk about hope? Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith and hope are inextricably linked. Love always hopes. Love and hope are inextricably linked. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Hope is our anchor. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. These are three what we call theological virtues. We know a lot about faith. We know a lot about love. How much do we know about hope? What is hope? If we were to unpack it, 
what is the anatomy of hope. So here's where I'm going to get you to do a little bit of work. Hope is talked a lot about in all sorts of circles at the moment, not least psychological circles. So if you go on to slide four, we have a little hope test. A good lesson in a school always starts with the baseline test, finding out how much hope do you have. So what I need you to do is I'm going to read out the question, and all you've got to do is, for each question, give yourself a score from one to eight. So one is definitely false, eight is definitely true, and then all the other numbers are somewhere in the middle. So, And you've got to keep a tally of your score as we go through. So question one. Yes, if you want to have a phone where you can actually uh, calculate your scores, that'd be great. Even better. Mark's going to get calculators for everybody. So one's definitely false. It's definitely true, and then all the numbers are in the middle. Oh, look, we've even got pens and paper. So this is to find out how hopeful are you. It's easy to sit there and think, yeah, I've got loads of hope. All right, so here goes. Anyone not ready? <laughs> okay, number one. I can think of many ways to get out of a jam, which means a problem in American speak. So one is definitely false. It is definitely true. So how true is that of you? I can think of many ways to get out of a jam. So when you've got a problem, are you immediately thinking, awesome, I can think of five different ways to get out of this. Right, number two. Mark can give me a nod if he thinks I'm going too fast. I energetically pursue my goals. Emphasis underlined in bold on energetically. So you might pursue them, might not be energetically. Okay, so one is false, it is true. I energetically pursue my goals. Number three. <laughs> this made me laugh. I feel tired most of the time. <laughs> I won't tell you my answer to that one. I feel tired most of the time. One, definitely false. Eight, definitely true. Number four. There are lots of ways around any problem. There are lots of ways around any problem. 
Number five, I'm easily downed in an argument. So if you're having an argument with someone, you easily let the other person win or just sort of step back from it. All the couples in the room are looking at each other. You might want to answer it for each other. (laughs) Right, number six, I can think of many ways to get the things in life that are most important to me. I can think of many ways to get the things in life that are most important to me. Number seven, I worry about my health. Number eight, even when others get discouraged, I know I can find a way to solve the problem. Even when others get discouraged, I know that I can find a way to solve the problem. Number nine, my past experiences have prepared me for my future. Number 10, I've been pretty successful in my life. Number 11, I usually find myself worrying about something. Number 12, I meet the goals that I set for myself. I meet the goals that I set for myself. Okay, so now I want you to do, add them all up. See what score you get. And if you did number them, if you didn't, don't worry, but if you did number them, add items one, four, six, and eight together. So if you did number them, add items one, four, six, and eight together. And then add two, nine, ten, and twelve together. Sorry, 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 sorry. One, four, six, and eight, we'll stick with that. So overall score, then one, four, six, and eight, and then two, nine, ten, and twelve.
2, 9, 10, and 12. Okay, so just one more minute. <laughs> okay, so firstly, are people ready or do you want to give me, do you want me to give you a little more time? You ready? All right. So firstly, the higher your score the higher your hope, okay? So out of 64, higher your score, the higher your hope. It's the first question, first point. And then the breakdown of the two things, so the first um, out of 32, so one, four, six, and eight, tells you how good you are at finding the path to the goal, okay? So that's one part of hope. How good are you at finding the path to the goal? And then the other side is, how much energy do you have to actually see the course through to get to the goal? So you may be able to find a path, but not very energetic to get there, depending on what your scores come out as. Okay? So I'll let you just see what you got in those two things for one minute. So the first one... Find the path, second one, how energetic you are to get there. Or not. <laughs> so the one, four, six, and eight was the first one. That's finding the path. Two, nine, ten, and twelve. How energetic you are to get there. All right, so if we just go to a blank screen, we don't need the screen anymore. Thank you. Okay, so that hope scale was put together by a guy called Charles Snyder, who's one of the leading people in the field of psychology that talks about hope. And he breaks down this concept of hope into three things one, the goal. Two, the path to the goal. And three, the energy that you have in order to walk the path to the goal. So three things. So if you were to take apart this anatomy of hope, he breaks it into three. And he's gone on to prove that people who have higher hope have better academics, are better in sport, have better physical health, and have better mental health. Wow. So this hope idea that's at the back of all of that success. Now, he's not the only one. In the sphere of education, I don't know those of you who work in schools, but there is a research body called Gallup Education Practice who carry out every year in every school what's called the Gallup Poll. And what they find is the three things that ultimately determine student performance are hope, well-being, and engagement. Now, what's interesting is well-being and engagement are quite high by percentages across Australian schools, 
whereas hope, only 48% of students come back as having hope. Now, what's interesting in this is they break hope into two parts, which is the ideas you have for the future and the pathway to get there. Okay, so two things. Then you have probably one of the most um, widely read popular psychologists at the moment, who's a woman called Angela Duckworth, and she wrote the book Grit. Hands up if you've read that. Okay, read it. Amazing book. In the middle of that, so she is basically saying that grit is an absolutely core characteristic for success in life. And in the middle of that, she has a, a chapter called Hope. And she breaks hope into two things, which is, one, this idea of a growth mindset, which is things are not fixed in stone. You can change things, and intellect is one of those. So this idea of intelligence is not fixed. So this growth mindset. And secondly, the ability to persevere through setbacks. So hope is two things. So you've got all of these people saying hope is key for success. Absolutely key. And my question this morning is, given that it's a core theological virtue, what are we saying about hope that is different? What are we saying about hope that's different? And how does Christian hope stand out as being different to that which is spoken about in all of these other different arenas? And my answer is simple. Self. The thing that's different about Christian hope from the anatomy of hope that's brought to us in all of these different circles is the self. So let me explain that. A colleague of Angela Duckworth rang her up one day and said, I don't agree with your idea of hope. She said, why not? And she said, well, because anyone who is persevering through setbacks doesn't do it on their own. You're suggesting that people get out of that hole on their own, and I don't think that's right. Any, pers any persevering that I do or any setbacks that I come across, I get out of that hole with the help of someone else. So in many ways, she was saying, you are all about self-help, and I don't believe that. Here is where the Christian message is absolutely mind-blowing. Because for us, hope is also two things. It's this idea of the future good that we confidently expect for. But it's the trust in the help that we are going to get there. Now, who's that? Well, that's Christ. It's not self-help. It's not the case of, yeah, we can just get there on our own. We actually can trust in someone who's going to get us there. It's a completely different thing. So they've got this vision for self-success and a vision for self-help. 
and the two hopefully will meet in the middle. And what Christianity is saying is, well, this vision that we have is not for self-success. Actually, it's so much greater than that. It's shalom. It's the whole of human flourishing. It's a new heaven and a new earth. We have this huge big vision of God as king. And not only that, we believe that we've got someone who will help us to get there. Wow. It means peace in the kind of widest sense. Peace with God, peace with ourselves, peace with everyone else. The whole of human flourishing. So let me just give you a little bit of my own story, which will help to kind of unravel this. When I was in my early teens, someone said to me, and this has become a bit of a catchphrase in St. Andrews, you're better than you think you are, which I thought was kind of an odd thing to say. I was a kind of average, happy student, and they said to me, you're better than you think you are. And I thought, okay. And then periodically over the next little while, they just kept saying it, you're better than you think you are. And the thing that happened to me there was I started to question this ceiling I have on my own expectations. So it started to raise my expectations of who I was and what I could achieve. And gradually that impacted particularly my academics, but it impacted my kind of vision for what I could achieve. So over the next 10 years, I kind of went from mediocre and then eventually ended up um, studying for a PhD in Oxford. I arrived there, and what hit me was fear. So I had these raised expectations, and then I got here, and I stood there, and I thought, I can't fulfill this. I'm here, but I actually can't do it. So I had these raised expectations, but I had no trust that I could get to that expectation, the second part of hope. And it completely made me fall apart. And at that time, what was going through my head again and again was this idea of grace, this concept of grace. And I thought, what is that? What is that? What is it? It just went over and over and over in my head. And I remember then asking a friend, in fact, it was Andrew, Asking Andrew at that time, what is great? What is grace? And him explaining to me what it was. And then I went along to a church. And to cut a long story short, I kind of had this revelation of my own sin. And at the very same time, like I was being caught by grace. It wasn't kind of, you're awful, you're awful. It was, it was, a, it was a dual process. And I then, of course became a Christian and, and understood grace and the Holy Spirit and the whole thing. And suddenly, this fear had gone. And I thought, okay, I'm here, and now I'm in this kind of new life. But what also changed for me was the vision as well. And suddenly, I had this passionate vision for God's kingdom come. And then within that, I had this vision for setting up Christian schools, I didn't even have any teaching experience at the time. I didn't know how I was going to do it. But I had this sense of if we actually have this whole vision for a new heaven and a new earth, well, well, that should impact now. And what does a school look like with that vision? And what does a business look like? And what does science look like? And what does, what does the whole world look like with that? Amazing. 
But I was particularly tuned into this idea of schooling. And then over time, it grew in me, this idea of Christian, setting up Christian schools. And I didn't want it to be for Christians. I wanted it to be for young people who weren't Christians. And I wanted it to be part of the kind of national system. And that's very different to here um, and, and what you're allowed to do here. But schools in the, in the United Kingdom are, are ultimately ha- supposed to have a Christian act of worship. And so for me, that grew over time. And then eventually, I got linked in with this group that were doing exactly that. And that's what we did. We took over a school that was struggling, one of the worst schools in Britain. And it was through the City Academies program. And it was really struggling. It had, at that time, 22% pass rate. It was high teenage pregnancy. There was truancy. There was bullying. There was everything under the sun. And we came in as a, diff- a new leadership team. And we, we built a, there was a new building built. And all the students and all the staff came from the old building into this new building. And it had a Christian ethos. And the impact on the community was massive, way beyond what I expected. Way beyond what I expected. And to see the Christian message, for us to be able to take that message to say, do you know what? You matter. You matter. Not because of who you are or where you come from or what your dad does or how much money you've got. You matter because you're a uniquely created human being with a purpose. Amazing. So what had been said to me all those years before, I was then able to pass on and say to these young people, you matter. Amazing. And the impact on them over time was absolutely vast. And eventually we went on to, you know, a different culture, different academic results, different aspirations. You know, I remember the very first day of being there, someone said, I said, what are you going to do with your life? And they said to me, nothing. I was like, what? You've actually planned to do nothing. That's, you know, aspiration on a different level. (laughs) And they said, yeah, my father's unemployed and his father's unemployed. And, you know, I'm going to be unemployed. And I thought, really? You've got, there's only one of you. Only you can be you. Only you can do what you were created to do. And it's up to us to help you and to, to, to launch you forward in doing that. And that was, in a sense, taking this idea of hope, which is a confident expectation in the future good and a trust in the help to get you there and putting it into this, this school. And the implications were huge. And I suppose my message this morning is one for us. It's a challenge, and it's a challenge to me as well, which is we are thought leaders in this idea of hope. We should be leaders in hope. Our vision should be bigger and broader and more passionate than anybody else's. But not only that, our energy should be greater than anybody else's because we have Jesus who helps us to create that hope here. And my challenge to myself is, do I? Is my vision great? And is my trust 
in what Christ can do through me, great. Do I come to church with an expectation? Do I? Or do I just come to church? Do I come into prayer with an expectation? Or do I just come with a list of complaints? Which is, which is often the case. And that's a challenge to me. And when we say, you know, when we go back to those verses about in this hope we are saved, that faith relies on hope, that love always hopes. If we don't have this hope, then wow, that is actually a problem. Let me just finish with I started with looking at um, the idea of love. And I'll just finish. I've used that same kind of taxonomy to talk about hope and just to, to kind of try and put it into um, a short paragraph. And it's this. Hope is visionary. Hope is expectant. It is not inactive, it is not wishful, it is not blind, it is not cynical, it is not fatalistic, it is not relative. Hope does not wallow in despair, but rejoices in what's possible. It always purifies, always saves, always produces virtue. Hope will not disappoint us. And that's amazing. Hope will, true hope. This Christian hope that we have will not disappoint us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the hope that you have gifted to us. And Lord, my prayer is that we would live it, that we would live it in a vision, that we would live it in an energy, that we would live it in an expectation, and that we would understand your kingdom come and that we would be part of doing that. For your name's sake. Amen.